Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I am so excited to dive into Scripture with you today. In fact, I woke up excited. I burst out of bed knowing we were diving into 2 Nephi today. The first two chapters are masterpieces, and I absolutely love the book of 2 Nephi. It's one of my favorites in the entire book, followed closely by all the others. But this one is amazing. Now, I'll admit, last week the curriculum department did us dirty by assigning us seven chapters to complete 1 Nephi, including two solid chapters of Isaiah, which deserved slow, <laughs> a slow read, careful attention. You see, we are making a pivot here from 1st to 2nd Nephi, and that's incredibly significant, because Joseph Smith didn't draw the line there. He didn't think that Nephi was too long, and so he chopped it in half. Otherwise, he would have done the same with Alma, right? We'd have 1st and 2nd Alma, but no. We have 1st and 2nd Nephi at Nephi's request. He's the one that divided it, which lets you know there was some purpose, some transition in his mind, why he would need a, a prequel and a sequel. And it's actually interesting to think about it, both historically and theologically, what kind of shift is he trying to make? Well, think back to last week. Uh, if, you, if you were able to stick with me the whole time, if you accepted my triple dog dare, the, uh, historically, the transition was the arrival at the Promised Land. They made the ship, they crossed the ocean, they finally got here. Okay, hallelujah. But theologically, the question was, what does that mean for us? Because we have now officially been scattered. We have come to a new land. We, we are a branch of the house of Israel that has been broken off and planted elsewhere in the vineyard. And what does that mean for us? Again, the historical is a really good transition. We'll do 1st Nephi in the old world, we'll do 2nd Nephi in the new world. But theologically, I love the way Nephi reassures us at the end of 1st Nephi, it's going to be okay. Yes, we've been scattered, but there is a personal promise of gathering. The Gentiles will bring us home carried on their shoulders. This is going to be a beautiful thing. But then he allows Laman and Lemuel to provide the, the cliffhanger to shift to 2 Nephi, because they asked the question at, in 1 Nephi 22, well, what kind of gathering are you, do you mean, little brother? Are we talking a literal or a symbolic one? Are we doing physical, geographical gathering, or are we talking a, a spiritual one? And Nephi, with a little twinkle in his eye, says, why, yes, both. Now, if it's just geographical, then don't, don't scuttle the ships, okay? Because uh, keep them in ship-shape uh, order because we might be heading home. And you picture Laman and Lemuel going, wow, my land of inheritance might still be mine after all. Hope nobody moved into the old estate. But 2 Nephi begins with a major shift. It's, it's said almost in passing. We get four verses in before Nephi let, let, lets us know why he's really making this pivot point. It's in 2 Nephi chapter 1, verse 4, where Lehi tells his sons, I have seen a vision in which I know that Jerusalem is destroyed. And had we remained in Jerusalem, we should also have perished. In a way, that puts to rest any hopes on Laman's part to go back and pick up where he left off. There's no going home, boys, because there's no home to go home to. Now, I said in previous weeks, that there is nothing more traumatic for this first family of the Book of Mormon than their scattering from Israel. Uh, for for the, the house of Israel itself, the scattering of the northern kingdoms in the, day, in the northern kingdom in the days of Isaiah, 
was as traumatic as it comes. And then fast forward to Lehi's day, the, the Babylonian exile and the destruction of Jerusalem, and worst of all, the temple was equally, if not more, traumatic for that generation. Lehi and his family are having their own traumatic experience, being scattered from, that all, from all of that. But here, it's finally clear. There's no going back. And for Jews who have been... I mean, the fact they're still fighting over the, la- the promised land to this day, seed of Abraham, lets you know how serious that part of the Abrahamic covenant is to all of his posterity, which would include Lehi. To think about... Jerusalem as the center of the universe. The navel of the earth is sometimes described. The belly button. There's an umbilical cord that reaches from God's throne in heaven directly down to the one place of inherent sacredness on the earth. Namely, the place of the Holy of Holies, of the temple of Jerusalem. There is sacred significance there, geographically, for the house of Israel. And so for Ezekiel to try to make sense of this, often in Babylonian exile, for Jeremiah to try to make sense of this as he's still there in the, amidst the shambles, go read the book of Lamentation. And that's how Lehi would be feeling. This whole colony that's been sent off now has to cope with the reality that Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's over. In a way, God has scuttled their ships the way Cortez did. We're not going back to the old world. The new world is the only world we've got. Now with that, we have some serious theology to wrestle with. Because land is anything but portable. It's the one thing that you really can't pick up and move. And so when you talk about promised land, we've been scattered from the only promised land Abraham knew. And now we're in some new land, but you're saying it's a land of promise? That, that's the question then. Land isn't portable, but are promises portable? Can we still be God's promised people? Can we lay hold and lay claim to the promises of God away from the original land of promise? Theologically, that's what we're wrestling with. And no wonder Lehi begins this book with reassurances to his sons, the promises still apply even here, if we'll simply keep them. I think the closest we come in church history is when the saints are driven out of Jackson County, Missouri. Because independence had a, a, a pin in the map put by God himself saying, that's Zion. That's where the new Jerusalem will be built. And I'm not, I'm not changing geography. Well, when the saints are driven out of the entire state under threat of extermination, theologically, they're in, a, they're in a tough place. What do we do? Are the promises portable? And it's then that the Lord reassures them that Zion is more than a place. It's a people. Zion is more than a a location. It's, It's a lifestyle. And in fact, if Zion is the pure in heart and you're not quite there yet, then no wonder you're not quite there yet as far as geography is concerned. Does that make sense? Uh, If you're ever going to go build Zion as a place, you have to become Zion as a people. So let it become your attitude, and eventually it will become your address. You with me on that? That's how the saints are going to have to navigate life in, in Nauvoo, life in Salt Lake, life in any of the isles of the sea where we've all been scattered. 
And that's what Lehi is trying to convey to his sons as we begin this sequel, this new book, this new, this new world with this new theological understanding that I have to become promised. And then any land upon which I set my feet will become promised to God as well. With that, begin this book, okay? And we've heard what, what Nephi has said about the promised land uh, back at the end of 1 Nephi. Now let's hear what, what uh, Lehi says about the promised land here in 2 Nephi. Chapter 1, verse 1, It came to pass that after I, Nephi, had made an end of teaching my brethren, our father Lehi also spake many things unto them, and rehearsed unto them how great things the Lord had done for them in bringing them out of the land of Jerusalem. What a blessing this scattering has been. Well, at least it is if you see God's hand in it. This is a great thing, my sons. In fact, think about the title page. It has echoes of this exact language. To show unto their posterity the great things God has done for their fathers. Lehi is beginning with that same concept. He then says in verse 2, He spake unto them concerning their rebellions upon the waters. We remember that from last week on the boat, right? And it's interesting that here's a loving father who isn't shy about pointing out the mistakes of his sons. Now, he's not doing it to dwell on them. He's not rubbing salt into their wounds. But he's reminding them of that so he can remind them of the forgiveness that came. See, the point is God here, the great things he's done. Well, that includes forgiveness. So when he mentions the rebellions upon the waters, he also focuses on the mercies of God in sparing their lives, that they were not swallowed up in the sea. He also spake unto them concerning the land of promise. Okay, there's his focal point for this first half of the chapter. This land of promise which they had received. And then again he pivots to divine attributes. How merciful the Lord had been in warning us that we should flee out of the land of Jerusalem. And then he drops the bomb and makes that painful announcement. Yes, Jerusalem has been destroyed. We're here for good. But I love the beginning of this. Here is Loving Father Lehi, letting people know, the, the, here's the bad news, but here's the good news. This is a great thing that a God of mercy has given us. That's also part, go, you go back to, to Nephi's thesis statement. The tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty unto the power of deliverance. And there's Lehi saying it. We've been delivered from what would have been inescapable destruction in Jerusalem. Here we are in this land of promise, a great gift from God because of his tender mercies to us. Okay, we're trying to prove, Nephi is trying to prove his point through every argument. With that then, notice what, what Lehi is going to do. As you begin verse 5, we're going to get to hear from Lehi his theology of promised land. And it's going to have to be promised lands uh, since the old one no longer applies. He says in verse 5, notwithstanding our afflictions. So I recognize our trials. I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything. This is not Pollyanna with, with rose-colored glasses. I get it. Those eight years in the wilderness were hard for me too. Remember when I murmured against the Lord? Well, notwithstanding our afflictions, we have obtained a land of promise. Honor the bad, but focus on the good. Recognize the past. Live in the present. Prepare for the future. We're here. And this is a land which is choice above all other lands, including the one we just left, evidently. All other lands. A land which the Lord God hath covenanted with me. So there's 
covenant. It, that hasn't been broken. Here's promise. It still applies. Which God hath covenanted with me should be a land for the inheritance of my seed. Yea, the Lord hath covenanted this land unto me and to my children forever. And also, notice this, all those who should be led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. Hmm. So he's not alone here. Later in the Book of Mormon, we'll meet the Mulekites. They came. Uh, earlier in the Book of Mormon, or though later in the text, we'll meet the Jaredites, and they were brought to this land of promise. Makes me wonder how, how broad that promise applies. When he says, also all those who should be brought here, whether we're speaking of America broadly, as in hemispheric, North and South America, whether we're speaking of America more, more narrowly, as the United States of America and cradle of the Restoration, a land of liberty, I, I picture Lady Liberty holding her, her torch aloft, and who is coming? People being brought, led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. The United States is definitely a nation of immigrants. The question is, how, how long ago? Uh, I am a, I'm here as a result of immigrants from Denmark and from Italy and from the British Isles. Uh, I'm a European mutt that has been transplanted to American soil. But I am grateful that my ancestors felt led to come. And I don't see a geographic date cutoff saying, nope, from this moment forward, nobody else is allowed to come here. Okay, But notice this, because we have to wrestle with that concept as well. And Lehi is going to focus on this in this theology of the land. In verse 6, he prophesies, There shall none come into this land, save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. And the reason for that is mentioned in verse 7, because this land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. Now that can become problematic because you think, well, wait a minute. Okay, so he brings people. He already mentioned the, those whom the Lord led out of other countries to come. And the land's been consecrated to them just like it's consecrated to, to Father Lehi. But this promise of, wait, so nobody's ever going to come here unless the Lord brought them? That, hmm, that's hard to believe, honestly, as we look around and see that it's not always the... the huddled masses yearning to breathe free that have come here to rest under Lady Liberty's lamp. Uh, others have come without, without, oh, without hopes of freedom and liberty on, in their mind. And here's an interesting thing, though, because I think Lehi clarifies it when we get to verse 8. It helps us see that the, the original prophecy, nobody's going to come here unless the Lord leads them, that seems to be confined to an ancient context. At least the, 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 the totality of this saying, everyone who comes is led by God. That applies in the past, because notice this phrase, verse 8. Behold, it is wisdom that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. For behold, many nations would overrun the land, that there would be no place for an inheritance. And that's exactly what happened once news of the new world reached the old world. By then, you could say, all bets were off, and it's going to be a mixed multitude that comes here. The inspiration behind their coming, in some instances, will be godly. Think about those who came for true religious freedom. 
Others, it may be less than noble means or purposes that they are coming for, for the God of gold, uh, that they are overrunning the land, uh, that they're not doing it for divine purposes. So again, up to the discovery of America, up to the discovery of the new world by the old world, it seems that this kind of promise applies. The only people that will be coming are those that are brought by the hand of the Lord. Uh, this is a land consecrated for them. Once it becomes com common knowledge, and once uh, the, the knowledge of, the, of this nation, of these nations, go to other nations, then some will still be coming brought by God, inspired by God. Others will be coming to overrun the land. And we have to be careful about both sides. Which are we? Whether we're coming or whether we st we're staying. Are we here at God's invitation and by God's inspiration? Because there's a lot of ifs here. Look at verse 7, for example. And if it so be that they shall serve him according to the commandments which he hath given, it shall be a land of liberty unto them. Wherefore, they shall never be brought down into captivity. Now, that's a, that's a beautiful promise, but it's a big if. Will people serve the God of this land? Will they keep his commandments while they are here? Will they allow this place to remain a land of liberty? Well, it all depends on why you've come and why you stay and what we're trying to accomplish here to keep this place, the land of the free and the home of the brave. On the other hand, what's going to happen if we don't? Lehi goes on, if so, it shall be because of iniquity. And the if so there is being brought down into captivity. If we do what's right, it'll never happen. We'll never be brought down into captivity. But if we are in captivity, it's going to be because of iniquity. Yet another if. For if iniquity shall abound, cursed shall be the land for their sakes. But unto the righteous it shall be blessed forever. I mean, verse 7 is crystal clear that there's promise, but it's not unconditional. This is a land of promise to those who keep their promises to God. That's what's going to maintain it as a land of liberty. Now, if you think about what John Adams and so many of the other founding fathers of the United States said, that this constitution, for example, the, the freedom we are offering people of all nations, we're going to try to pull off the impossible here and have a truly diverse democracy. The question will be, can we hold on to it? And that's going to require morality on our part. It's going to require goodness on our part. It's going to require obedience to the unenforceable on our part. It's going to require civic virtue and moral values and selflessness and caring for one another. It's, we're, even during Joseph Smith's period, people from Europe would come and travel to the United States out of curiosity to see if this experiment was actually going to work. In some ways, the jury's still out on that. How are we doing living up to the promises of this land of promise? There's more ifs to come, by the way. Verse 9, you'll see several more of them. Lehi says, Wherefore, I, Lehi, have obtained a promise that inasmuch, and that's just a big way of saying if, <laughs> to the degree that, or if we do this, so inasmuch as those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments, they shall prosper upon the face of this land. 
and they shall be kept from all other nations, that they may possess this land unto themselves. Again, that's, that's the way things were up until eight, nine, uh, 1492. And if it so be that they shall keep his commandments, there's another big if, they shall be blessed upon the face of this land, and there shall be none to molest them, nor to take away the land of their inheritance. They shall dwell safely forever. Now, it's interesting because in the 1950s, when Dwight Eisenhower occupied the Oval Office, his Secretary of Agriculture had an office in D.C., but also had an office in Salt Lake. This was Ezra Taft Benson, Secretary uh, in the President's Cabinet, but also Apostle in the Quorum of the Twelve. And as a lifelong lover of the Book of Mormon, and totally not shy about sharing his testimony of it, President Benson was known to quote passages from the Book of Mormon and send them to President Eisenhower by way of dropping hints about the, the destiny and promise of the United States. Uh, he often would quote from Ether. We'll get to that later this year. But it would reflect verses just like this one that we just read in 2 Nephi chapter 1. And Eisenhower would always respond like, oh, well, thank you for sharing this verse from the Book of Mormon. That's fascinating considering what the United States is supposed to be. If we're going to be a, oh, a city on a hill, if we're going to be a light to the world, and politically the United States has been, uh, Thankfully, democracy has been the United States' greatest export. And other nations around the world seeing the success of this experiment and deciding to try it for themselves. This now becomes a worldwide challenge. Will we live in such a way that we can hold on to the freedom and the democracy that God has entrusted us with? Okay? Now with that, go to verse 10. Because this is not, there's not a just ifs here in this chapter, there's a when, and the when concerns me. Verse 10, But behold, when the time cometh that they shall dwindle in unbelief, after they have received so great blessings from the hand of the Lord. And then he describes some. This is the much is given, much is required part of this chapter. Having a knowledge of the creation of the earth and all men, knowing the great and marvelous works of the Lord from the creation of the world, having power given them to do all things by faith, having all the commandments from the beginning, and having been brought by his infinite goodness into this precious land of promise. Again, all these great things the Lord has done based on his great goodness. Here's divine acts inspired by divine attributes. That's just how Lehi sees the world, and I love him for it. Okay, But be, of all of this, when you dwindle in unbelief, despite all of these incredible gifts, now keep reading, behold, I say, if the day shall come, ah, okay, so the dwindling is a when, but this day is an if, if the day shall come that they will reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, their Redeemer, and their God, behold, the judgments of him that is just shall rest upon them. And that's what Lehi is trying to warn them and us against. Oh, there will be ups and downs, roller coaster of faith. There will be a dwindling when that day comes. Oh, but don't ever let it turn into an outright rejection of the God of this land. Because you kick him out of the land, well, it's his land. We'll end up getting kicked out of it ourselves. Okay, be, be aware of these whens and ifs. And the role we play on deciding if it'll be an if or if it will be a when. 
It makes me think later on in the Book of Mormon when you get to Fourth Nephi, for example, and they, after 200 years of absolute peace and Zion here in the Americas, they dwindle in unbelief, that when comes. They end up rejecting their Messiah, their Redeemer, their God. That if becomes the when for them. And then all bets are off on this land of promise. The Nephites are annihilated. It, it's over for them. And will it be over for the posterity of the Lamanites as well? You see, if you look at verse 11, this is what some of this destruction, some of this judgment will look like. Yea, he will bring other nations unto them, and he will give them power. And he will take away from them the lands of their possessions, and he will cause them to be scattered and smitten, which is exactly what's happened. But then Lehi makes this beautiful pivot to his direct audience, his sons. Now that you understand the importance of keeping God's promises here on this land of promise, now you, that you know that Zion is the pure in heart and not just some kind of place in the sand, please, we have to live up to that. So for the rest of chapter 1, it is solid exhortation from father to sons. And you can picture Laman and Lemuel primarily being his target audience, just like it was when he taught his dream back in chapter 8 of 1 Nephi. Start in verse 13, though, and notice the exhortation unfold. Oh, that ye would awake, awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell. Shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound, which are the chains which bind the children of men, that they are carried away captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. Or, as he could say from his dream, the river of filthy water that sweeps us down to destruction. I find it interesting that as far as Lehi is concerned, his biggest worry is spiritual sleep. That's why he's telling him to awake, and he'll say this over and over. There is this deep sleep here. You could call it faith fatigue, where you're just tired. You're, you've grown drowsy, spiritually sleepy. Your eyes are beginning to droop, and you don't see the blessings of God. You have become a little lazy, and... And you know, that's easy to do in the promised land. If you think about the Jaredites that spent four years on their beachfront property when they were supposed to be moving forward, Laman and Lemuel tempted to do the same thing back in their Arabian Bountiful. And now that in their promised land, and hey, there's, there's ore and there's animals, and this actually looks like a pretty good place to stay. Well, are we going to fall asleep spiritually? It's interesting that so often it's those who ha that are living in promised lands that tend toward this kind of spiritual sleep. So what will it take to wake them up? How do I shake them so that they can shake off the awful chains? Well, he's going to do his best. Verse 14, awake and arise from the dust. Hear the words of a trembling parent. Back in 1 Nephi, we saw him as a tender parent. Well, he's gone from tender to trembling because of age whose limbs you must soon lay down in the cold and silent grave from whence no traveler can return. Oh, a few more days and I go the way of all the earth. These are Father Lehi's dying words. We've got to take them seriously. But then again, Lehi's ready to go. He's, he's fought the good fight. He's finished the course. He's kept the faith. And so he says in verse 15, Behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I'm not questioning that. It's you guys I'm worried about. Uh, but he's redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally. 
in the arms of his love. That is such a beautiful contrary that Lehi is proving there. Because on the one hand, to see God's glory, it's easy to be overawed by the infinite and keep distance out of, out of fear, out of respect, out of reverence. And yet for God to reassure us to come boldly to the throne of grace, to coax us to come closer, so that he can encircle us eternally in the arms of his love. Oh, if the, the glory is the infinite, the love is the intimate. And if our awe keeps us at safe distance, God's embrace is meant to draw us ever closer. I've had more questions about the background uh, here in, in my wife's office about one thing in the, uh, behind me than any other, any other object. Some of you comment on book titles that you can read and so on. But everybody seems to ask me about what's right above my finger right here. They ask, what's that book about infinite intimate? It's not a book. It's a painting from my oldest daughter who put into, onto canvas one of my favorite contraries, which is it's how I view God as infinite and intimate. Lehi is seeing the same thing here. I've seen his glory the infinite side of God, but I've been embraced by his love. There's the intimate side. Balance those two, and you'll have a right relationship with your Father in heaven. He then says in verse 16, because like, like I mentioned, Lehi's good to go, but are his sons. He says to them, I desire that you should remember to observe the statutes and the judgments of the Lord. Behold, this hath been the anxiety of my soul from the beginning. And this is an anxiety that every good parent feels. Lehi felt it. It's what lies behind everything he's done as a parent. All the tender exhortation, all the preaching and prophesying, all the ceasing to speak, uh, the explaining of the vision, the, the naming of rivers and valleys after his sons, everything he's done is out of anxiety for their eternal welfare. Now, that word anxiety is a tough one. And as we'll learn from Lehi's son Jacob in a couple of, well, in a month or so, that anxiety must be counterbalanced with faith. Your anxiety is driven because they're your kids, but your faith ought to be confirmed knowing they're God's kids too. And this is meant to be a, a co-parenting, <laughs> that you are parenting these children, but God is too. So Lehi's doing the best that he can, but he also has the faith to leave things in God's hands. We'll see that in just a moment. He says in verse 17, My heart hath been weighed down with sorrow from time to time. And he's had plenty of cause for that. For I have feared, he says, lest for the hardness of your hearts, the Lord your God should come out in the fullness of his wrath upon you, that ye be cut off and destroyed forever. Remember, he's talking Laman and Lemuel here. And yes, I've been worried sick about you. The anxiety in verse 16 is followed by fear in 17. And like I said, those are emotions that every parent well understands. But couple those emotions with faith. Trust God. Know that he is hard at work on every prodigal child. So, after worrying about their future and hoping for their best, Lehi says in verse 19, But behold, his will be done, for his ways are righteousness forever. And again, there's the, the faith that counterbalances his anxiety and his fear. I know God is involved in this. 
I know that he has, he, can, he, can, he has eternity to play the long game. And our theology allows us to be patient. So I'm going to trust God's will. I'm going to trust his timing, his power, his pace, his process. And I'm going to leave it in his all-capable hands. I think it's important that we not take all the credit for our children's successes, nor all the blame for their failures. Our parents had to grapple with the same thing regarding each one of us. And our heavenly parents are helping things to be navigated in the right way every step. But once we've understood that, Lehi is able to repeat his theology of the promised land. He talks back, he goes back to the central promise that he's been repeating all along. The, the, the focus on obedience. He says in verse 20, Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. But inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from my presence. That's the Deuteronomist focus, the promise there. That is the, the sense that they got in Jerusalem. As long as we keep the, the commandments, we'll be blessed here. And well, that explains why they've now been destroyed. They weren't keeping the commandments. Remember, that was the theology Nephi wrestled with back in 1 Nephi chapter 17 trying to explain to Laman and Lemuel why we're leaving, uh, that the land is not land of promise anymore because people aren't keeping God's promises. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, big brothers. We might want to try a little harder ourselves. Well, Le Lehi drops a similar hint and then makes it crystal clear in verse 21. Now that my soul might have joy in you, forget the anxiety, forget the fear, I want joy, that my heart might leave this world with gladness because of you that I might not be brought down with grief and sorrow to the grave. You get a sense how emotional, what an emotional parent Lehi is. Sarah, Sariah would have been no different based on what we know about her back in chapter 5. That we want to joy, not sorrow. We want gladness, not grief. And to do that, here are my words of exhortation. Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. Just grow up in God, boys. Live up to divine potential. Do you see who you are? Then why are you sitting on the, on the floor? In fact, why are you lying on the ground? That dust, that sleep, you've got to get up and dust yourself off and be the men of God I know you're capable of becoming. This is the ultimate pump-up speech. This is, this is a father's final blessing to boys that he's worried sick about. He says, be determined in one mind and in one heart, united in all things, that ye may not come down into captivity. Interesting. Again, if we're trying to establish Zion, how does the Lord define it? One heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness with no poor among you. Interesting that Lehi would emphasize family unity as the key to keeping their new land of inheritance. In a way, Laman and Lemuel, please stick with Nephi. It's your only hope. He'll come right back to that in verse 24, but he inserts this in verse 23. One more beautiful reminder. Awake, my sons. Put on the armor of righteousness. Shake off the chains with which ye are bound. And come forth out of obscurity. Arise from the dust. Lehi is a masterful writer, speaker, Literarily, it's absolutely beautiful. Again, you see that parallelism. If you're going to put on armor, you better shake off chain. 
Uh, can you imagine if you're still bound by the chains of sin or hell and then you try to put on the armor of righteousness over it? Oh yeah, it'll conceal my sin. That's even better. There's a little hypocrisy there. But if I, if I can just cover what, what's really down underneath, then people will see, I'll look valiant. I'll look righteous. Man, that's uncomfortable. Can you imagine strapping on armor when there are chains underneath? No, for us to ever let the armor, for the armor to be comfortable, for it actually to be a good fit, we have to overcome and remove the chains with which we're bound. We have to put off the bad before we can put on the good. And that's what dad is pleading with his boys to do. Be those kinds of men. In some ways, you've got to replace darkness with light. Replace sleep with eternal vigilance. Replace dust with divinity. You're made of both. There's another contrary there too. Which nature will you lean in the direction of? Choice is yours, my sons. But back to that concept of unity of being truly one, determined to be that way. Nothing can break up our family. Again, there's, there's a parent's dream, a wish, prayer. Then go to verse 24, and let's see how we do this. How can we, how can we follow Nephi? He's, he's trying to get older brothers to follow a younger brother's righteous example. That's tough to do in, in such a patriarchal society. Uh, oldest brother is the birthright. That's just how it works. But again, birthright, like promised land. We're talking birthrights here, boys. And it's not an automatic just because you came out of the womb first. You have to live up to it. You have to be trustworthy. If, if I'm going to trust you with the double portion, we have to keep promises if God will trust us with the promised land. So the next few verses, 24 to the end of the chapter, really, are beautiful when it comes to following prophets. At least that's how I liken it unto me for my profit and learning. Uh, to get Laman and Lemuel to try to trust Nephi's leadership. Verse 24 to 29, look for lessons of your own about following the prophet. In fact, if any come to mind, put them in the, in the comment section. I'd love to read them. I'd love for you to be able to comment on each other because almost every phrase in the next few verses is so packed with potential insight. Like, oh, that's what it made me think of. Or that's what inspires me to follow living prophets of God. That can be a difficult thing sometimes in this anti-institutional age. And will I follow the prophets, seers, and revelators God has placed at the head of the church? Well, wrestle with these phrases, starting in verse 24. Rebel no more against your brother, whose views have been glorious. I love that phrase when it comes to the vision of seers, the perspective of prophets. Their views have been glorious. What have they seen? What are they trying to help me see? Who have kept the commandments from the time that we left Jerusalem. Talk about an incredible track record. Does that give us confidence that they will continue on the covenant path and show us the way to do likewise? Who have been an instrument in the hands of God in bringing us forth into the land of promise. Oh, there's, speaking of track record, it's amazing to see how many beautiful ways the Lord has used His servants to perform His work. For were it not for Him, we must have perished with hunger in the wilderness. 
And I will forever be grateful for the bread of life that prophets and apostles have given me throughout my life. Nevertheless, he warns, ye sought to take away his life. Yea, he hath suffered much sorrow because of you. And though that hopefully isn't literal on our part, have they suffered sorrow because of our, our spiritual slumber, our inability to wake up when they call? I was just joking with my BYU students that imagine if there were an alarm clock in the shape of President Nelson. They were like, huh? That's awkward. A bust of President Nelson there on your side, your end table. And at 6 o'clock in the morning when you set the alarm, it doesn't make that, that eh, eh sound. It simply says, repent, repent, repent. <laughs> and yes, there's a snooze bar somewhere on that alarm clock with a six-month wait between conferences. Oh, we fully intend to wake up eventually. I, of course I'm going to arise from the dust and be a true man or woman of God. Ah, but just not yet. I'm, I'm still a little sleepy. You see the danger here? Does that cause them to suffer sorrow because of us? Well, keep reading. Verse 25, I exceedingly fear and tremble because of you, lest he shall suffer again. For behold, ye have accused him, that he sought power and authority over you. But I know that he hath not sought for power nor authority over you. Those have never been his motives. Here's what they have been. He hath sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare. Now think about what motivates prophets of God. Not self, but God. There's the vertical component. And others, there's the horizontal component. They are moved by the first and second great commandment. They are doing all things because God has asked them to. And they are doing it out of love for him and love for their fellow man and woman. I w smiled when I heard about Elder Kieran's recent call to the quorum. And when he sat down with President Nelson at first, and, Pres and he, just, he was so blown away by it, I can't imagine what it would feel like. President Elder Maxwell used to say that the call to the apostleship is a call to a sense of perpetual inadequacy. It's like you'll never feel up to this calling. Yikes. Well, Elder Kieran was getting his first taste of that. Okay? It is, and it's, it's not a good flavor, evidently. And he suggested to President Nelson a bunch of other people that would make incredible apostles. Until President Nelson had to clarify and confirm. I'm not asking for your suggestions. I'm extending a call from the Savior Jesus Christ. <laughs> and how do you say no to that? Oh, in that case, I accept humbly, inadequately. And Elder Kieran is going to be an incredible instrument in the hands of God for the rest of his life. He already has been. And his views have been glorious. He's helped me see some things I didn't see before. That kind of motivation, that kind of how noble motive, they can be trusted. I've heard it said that you should never trust power to people who were seeking it. it makes me real th rethink all, all of politics, right? But what we're seeing here. He wasn't seeking power and authority. He's not trying to usurp your role, Laman. In fact, go back through 1 Nephi and see how Nephi has worked with Laman throughout it. I'm not asking to be in charge. You're my big brother. I wish you'd act like it in some ways. Because then notice verse 26. Ye have murmured because he hath been plain unto you. 
And we saw that back in chapter 16, right? Uh, the wicked take the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. Yeah, they were mad about what Nephi had said. You've murmured, he was plain. Ye say that he hath used sharpness. Ye say that he hath been angry with you. But behold, his sharpness was the sharpness of the power of the word of God, which was in him. And that which he called anger was the truth, according to that which is in God, which he could not restrain, manifesting boldly concerning your iniquities. I mean, honestly, sons, how you react to him says more about you than about him. Uh, if the truth hurt, it probably needed to. If it cut and seemed angry, perhaps you were past feeling and couldn't simply be pricked. That would suggest a sensitive conscience, and yours wasn't very sensitive. Uh, perhaps he had to use the megaphone because you were plugging your ears. And I worry about that. I felt that myself. I don't think Lehi was oblivious to the danger he was in with his rebellious oldest sons who had plotted not only the, their little brother's death, but their father's death as well. Uh, yeah, sorrow, fear, anxiety, you better believe it. Then verse 27, he continues to clarify, it must needs be that the power of God must be with him, even unto the commanding you that ye must obey. And that's exactly what happened back in chapter 17. They, they obeyed. They helped build the ship once they realized that Nephi did indeed have the power of God. Then again, Lehi clarifies, it was not he, but it was the spirit of the Lord which was in him, which opened his mouth to utterance that he could not shut it. Lehi knows what that feels like. He couldn't shut his mouth back in Jerusalem. He saw that example in Jeremiah. Remember his words when he tried to take off his missionary tag and throw it away? When he told God, I'm done, I'm not going to prophesy anymore, it only brings me trouble. And it didn't even last a whole verse before he realized, oh, actually, it's harder to keep my mouth shut. Sorry. I got to keep going. I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. That's, that's Jeremiah for you. That's Lehi for you. That's Ben Nephi for you. That's prophets and apostles of God. Again, I challenge each of us to wrestle with that passage from 24 to 27 and ponder, take it apart phrase by phrase, think it through, and how am I doing in terms of my attitude toward prophetic leadership? This is something we all need to wrestle with a little more carefully. And it will change us if we start to see why God has placed certain people in those positions of authority. The chapter then ends with some final ifs, where Lehi says, Now my son Laman, and also Lemuel, and Sam, I'll include you in this one too. Also my sons who are the sons of Ishmael, most likely his sons-in-law, married into the family. I've got some ifs for you as well, okay? Behold, if ye will hearken unto the voice of Nephi, ye shall not perish. That goes back to the be determined in one heart, one mind. You've got to stick together on this. And yes, Nephi will be your leader and your teacher, at least spiritually. Because notice the next phrase. This is directly, directed particularly to Laman. If ye will hearken unto him, I leave unto you a blessing, yea, even my first blessing. On the other hand, if ye will not hearken unto him, I take away my first blessing, yea, even my blessing. 
and it shall rest upon him. Now that must have been a fascinating realization for Laman. Like, wait, wait, wait a minute. You, you said I could still have your first blessing, your blessing, as in birthright blessing? I haven't eaten the mess of pottage yet? Think about Esau and Jacob, right? You picture Lehi saying, well, I know you've been taste testing it left and right, and it's caused me anxiety and fear and sorrow all along the way. But it's, it's not over yet. I will exhort you with all the feelings of a tender parent. I am t- inviting you, pleading with you to arise from the dust and be men. And yes, you can be a man of leadership. You're still my firstborn. And if you live up to firstborn <laughs> expectations, then you can have firstborn authority. I just have to be able to trust you to lead. And to do that, I have to trust you to follow. Follow Nephi. Now, this would be an odd arrangement. We're separating church and state here, okay? We are often king and priest are one and the same person, but it doesn't have to be that way necessarily. For example, think about the Jaredites. Who's in charge politically? Well, Jared, hence the name Jaredites. But who's in charge spiritually? Oh, the brother of Jared. And Jared knows it, and he's okay with that. In fact, he's grateful for it. Brother of Jared, Mahanrai, will you go ask God this and go seek this blessing? I honor your gifts. I rely upon them. And Laman, had he been humble, could have done the same. Nephi has the gifts of God as far as prophecy, vision, seership. Think about what he's done. He's been trying to help you all along the way. But he'll honor your political leadership if you'll honor his spiritual gifts. Such a fascinating thing. In some ways, this ending to, this, this blessing to Laman is the blessing to us all. This specific, these words to Laman, in some ways, take the theology of the promised land that Lehi has been teaching for this entire chapter and just centers it on his oldest son. But the choice is the same for all of us. Will I obey or disobey? What will I choose to do? What will I do with my agency? And that's interesting because agency will be the key topic for the next chapter, chapter 2. But Laman, here you are exercising it. What will you do? Here we are, in our lands of promise, deciding whether or not we will live up to the promises of God. The blessings, the first blessings are right in front of us. We now have the chance to choose.